traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, I'm Tom Standage, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. This week, The Economist is asking, what is consciousness and where does it come from? While it may be a uniquely human ability to realise that we do indeed experience consciousness, so far that hasn't helped us truly understand what it is. Joining us this week to unpick this complex question is Daniel Dennett, an American philosopher, cognitive scientist and prolific writer. In his most recent book, entitled From Bacteria to Bach and Back, The Evolution of Minds, Dan has weaved together intricate strands of human existence to try to get to the bottom of the problem. Evolution has designed every organism's capacity to deal with its world to be user-friendly. It ignores blurs over any information that isn't really important to it. And our resident expert on linguistics, who also writes our Johnson column on language, Lane Green, joins us to probe Daniel on the role of language in the evolution of our conscious experience. Amazingly, we still haven't gotten to the origin of language. The best minds in the world have applied themselves to this, and they've come up with wildly different theories. So, Dan, you've been thinking about this question for your whole career. Do you think you've finally solved it? Where does consciousness come from? Well, I I think I've got a a draft of a good solution which stands up pretty well to the empirical facts, and it's completely naturalistic. There's no no mysteries, no miracles, no magic stuff. Consciousness is a biological phenomenon like, uh, like digestion and reproduction. People are familiar with the idea that evolution can give rise to complex bodies, and what you've done in this book is extended that to explain how evolution can give rise to complex minds. How does that work? How do you build up from these mindless units? The first thing you have to understand is that long before there were minds, there were competent agents that were very competent, but they didn't understand what they were doing or why they didn't have to. That's nature's way. I call this uh, competence without comprehension. Comprehension, what we do and prize, is a very recent development on the evolutionary scene. And even the chimpanzees and the dolphins and the dogs don't have the kind of comprehension that we have. We tend to overestimate their comprehension. And if you understand how competent they can be without much comprehension, then it helps you see how amazing human comprehension is, and then it creates a puzzle. How on earth do you get it? So evolution got rid of the sort of need for a mystical explanation for the origin of bodies, and you're trying to do the same for the origin of minds. Exactly. And how do you do that? The key element is you have to add a second evolutionary process much faster and operating in what you might call an abstract realm, in the realm of cultural entities that can be replicated and copied and transmitted, uh, what Richard Dawkins calls memes. Of course, the concept of a meme has gone viral, as one would say, uh, but most people don't understand the theoretical concept from which it sprang. And Dawkins' concept of memes is really a a deep and interesting concept, has not much to do with internet memes, although they count as as an example of a Dawkinsian meme. It's just that more interesting examples are, are, say, words. Every word is a 
little software agent that replicates and competes for space in people's minds and on the page and everywhere else. It's the differential reproduction of things like words and other memes that can't be pronounced. That's what creates human culture. So it's a layer that sits on top, the evolution and the, and the mimetic layer sits on top of the, the genetic layer. What do you think about that, Lane? You're a student of the philosophy of language. Is that a, a generally accepted idea? Well, Darwin, of course, realized that there's a lot of analogy between the evolution of languages and the evolution of species themselves. And uh, he never quite got to the origin of language. And amazingly, we still haven't gotten to the origin of language. The best minds in the world have applied themselves to this, and they've come up with wildly different theories. Chomsky is perhaps the best known. Noam Chomsky of MIT has one theory that's considered kind of a great leap kind of theory. Uh, other people take more gradual approaches, and you address some of those in your chapters on language. Yes, I think the issue of how language got started is like the issue of how life got started. Two big unanswered questions. But there's an embarrassment of riches in both cases. There's lots of different ideas. And uh, eventually, we're going to pare them down to the right answers because we will be able to find the evidence that pretty conclusively shows why some are wrong and, and one is right. It sounds like you're saying that we don't know yet how physically we learn to speak, uh, that whether it was Chomsky's great leads forward, he has a theory called merge in which one human suddenly got the ability yeah. to combine ideas and put them in recursive structures. But it sounds like we don't know which of those theories about the physical or genetic changes is correct. But you have a theory, a, a sort of information theoretical approach to how accumulation of knowledge, the successful reproduction of some memes and the dying out of others gave rise to ever more complex culture and therefore more complex minds that could absorb that culture. I, I think the, the key to the difference between, say, my view and the views that I take very seriously and think are on the right track and, say, Chomsky's is that I think that memes had to do a lot of evolving first before the brain could respond to them. Yeah, the idea that there was a sort of great leap in the brain, a sort of cosmic wonderful accident is um, preposterous. But Chomsky likes it and he's always liked it. And we have to just say, well, I suppose it's an outside possibility. Don't we see evidence, though, in, in animals? We see evidence of sort of primitive language, different calls. And don't we also see examples of primitive culture? So is that an example of a mimetic layer starting to form? Well, there is some cultural evolution, some transmission of traditions in a few species, in some birds, in some primates, and arguably in some cetaceans. But it never goes cumulative. And I think in order to go cumulative, you need a medium that has the same high-fidelity replication that genes do, and language is just such a medium. When language first got started, it wasn't language. It was proto-language, and before that, it was proto-proto-language. And the best way to understand it is as habits that were unwittingly spread by hominids who imitated each other. And what happened is that some of these habits developed the digitality of language with phonemes and made them memorable. What were they for? They weren't for anything. They were for themselves. They were, they were viruses. But some of them became sufficiently well-established in brains that brains could then begin using them for other things. And out of that grew language, and out of that, maybe grew something like Chomsky's merge. But it wasn't a sudden, miraculous first step. It was a genetic response to something that had 
already gotten underway in this proto-culture that was developing. So, so let's go back to consciousness then, because you can see how you get brains of increasing complexity from an evolutionary process, and you can also imagine how you get a mimetic layer of increasing cultural complexity on top of that. But where do you kind of flip over into a state of consciousness? Does it emerge gradually? Because there's definitely something different between us and, say, dogs. Chomsky's merge is one mistake, I think, because it, it's a shazam off on bright line. Another is the idea that consciousness, you either got it or you don't. Many people are convinced that that has to be right. And then they wonder, when did it happen? When did the light come on? Was it in the toads or the, or the snails or maybe trees have it? And this creates the illusion of a sort of magical property that you either have or you don't. And when people look at my view, they think that what I'm saying is, and the magical property doesn't come on until you get to speaking adults. No, I'm saying that there's a continuum which includes the dogs and the dolphins and the chimpanzees and the small children. And what you get is a gradual complexification and a gradual ability to do more and more and more things with what you got in your head. You also talk about something called the user illusion because we don't feel like we have just sort of walked up this curve of gradual complexity. We think there's something different about us. So what's going on there? The term comes, of course, from programming computers. The human user interface, the computer human interface, is this wonderful desktop with you can click and drag and it makes little noises and you put things in folders and so forth. That, of course, is a really distorted picture of what's going on under the hood inside your laptop. But it's a useful picture. It's designed to be user-friendly, as one says. Well, evolution has designed every organism's capacity to deal with its world to be user-friendly. It ignores, blurs over any information that isn't really important to it at the moment, and it settles for a sort of metaphorical vision of what's out there in the world. The user illusion for a bacterium is trivial. Most people say, well, it's not even conscious at all. Yeah, I would think that not much point in talking about the consciousness of a bacterium. By the time you get to a child or a dog, there's much more the organism can do with the input and the interactions and the capacity to react and react to the reactions and react to the reactions and so forth. Now, when I say react to the reactions, some people say, oh, yeah, Dennett's not talking about consciousness. He's talking about reflective consciousness. He's talking about second-order consciousness. No, I'm saying consciousness is second-order for every organism. It's just second and third and fourth and nth order in us so that there's a pronounced shift sort of going into high gear when you get to the human brain and its user illusion, much more so than, a, say, a chimp brain. So the user illusion starts off being a sort of illusion of perception. And then as it becomes more complex, that encompasses self-perception, which is yes. where we get consciousness. Yes. When you say second order, then you mean something like thinking about the fact that you're thinking and then thinking about the fact that you're thinking about the fact that you're thinking. And, and so, so forth. forth. Yes. And of course, that has an echo with merge because it's recursion. And Chomsky's whole idea with merge was that it emerged not for communication, but for thinking. A lot of people might be surprised by the fact that the world's most eminent linguist thinks that language came about in one person so that he could think more efficiently. And I think that's a cute idea and just backwards. Chomsky once said, uh, no biologist would ever say that the function of something was an effect which it had, oh, just one or two percent of the time. Well, think about, say, sperm. 
We know what the function of sperm is. Not one in a billion actually achieves that function. Biologists all the time say that the function of something is something which is seldom realized. There's no question what the function of an apple is. It's to lead to the creation of another apple tree. But not one in a million does. What does all this tell us about artificial intelligence and you know, our increasing propensity to ascribe intelligence and ask about consciousness of machines? Francis Crick once said, evolution is cleverer than you are. A nice quip. What he meant was not that evolution was intelligent design, but that the products of evolution are stunningly effective, and they're arrived at by mindless bottom-up processes. One of the great proofs of Crick's quip is the new developments in artificial intelligence, which all involve sort of Darwin-esque, bottom-up, mindless supercompetences sifting through gigantic databases and eking out stunning discoveries or designs the old-fashioned way, the Darwinian way, without comprehension. This is a complete inversion of the good old-fashioned AI, which was top-down intelligent design, and it didn't work, did it? And they spent decades trying to build these systems where they sort of handcrafted the intelligence. That's right. And That's it's, right. in the last five years, these neural network-based systems have got much smarter. Obviously, people are now having complained for decades that AI wasn't advancing fast enough. Many people are now worried that it's advancing too fast. Are you scared about the rate at which it's going? Do you think we have something to fear here? We have various visionaries who are predicting that a conscious artificial super agent, more intelligent than any human being, will soon be a possibility. And of course, as soon as it arises, then it will just take over and there won't be any point in doing science anymore because it will solve all the scientific problems and it will treat us as, I don't know, maybe just custodial uh, helpers or something Now, on like the face that. of it, your argument supports that view in some ways because you're saying there's nothing mystical about consciousness and therefore there's no reason why an evolving machine couldn't become conscious. In fact, I've argued for many years and in the face of a lot of skepticism that in principle, strong AI is possible. In principle, you could make a conscious robot, a conscious agent robot. Yes, it's possible in principle. That doesn't mean it's possible in practice. And in fact, the current systems, although they put on a tremendous show and are brilliant tools, they're not colleagues. And turning an intelligent tool into a colleague is a huge job. IBM's Watson, which uses up as much electricity as a big town, uh, is a gigantic system, and it won Jeopardy. It beat human Jeopardy players. But it can't hold a conversation. What would it take to turn Watson into a conscious an agent worth befriending. It wouldn't be twice as big or three times as big. It might be a million times as big. Still possible in principle, but who's going to pay for it? So we may be able to build these machines, but they're nowhere close and we don't need to worry about killer robots. You're worried about something else, though, that while we build these tools rather than colleagues, as you call them, that we're in danger of ascribing too much intelligence to them. What do you mean by that? There's, I think, a human instinct whenever there's something complex and fascinating, to treat it as an agent, to adopt what I call the intentional stance to it. And one of the features of that wonderful method is that we over-endow things with understanding. It's part of the, of the strategy. And so it's very hard for people to put the brakes on and notice the gaps and the blind spots. We tend to attribute more comprehension even to each other and to our dogs and cats than they really have. And so what we have to do is point this out to people, teach them how to 
see behind the facade and recognize that a lot of this clever performance is sort of a Potemkin village. It's a sort of facade. And one thing that I am urging people in AI to do is to cut out the cutesy human fakery because that's false advertising. It really is. And a lot of people delight in it, and it's very effective. And it gives people the idea that something like the fictions of, of the recent movies, Ex Machina or Her, that those are close to reality. Nonsense. They're not close to reality at all. They're wonderful fictions. They're brilliant evocations of what could happen in principle, but they're about as fictional as The Terminator. Daniel Dennett, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking with you. And thank you, Lane. Thank you. You've been listening to The Economist Asks. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate it through your podcast app or on iTunes. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.